A few weeks ago, we started our Witnesses series. We started in the beginning of the book of Acts. And we saw the coming of the kingdom of God with, in Jesus' words, with power. This uh, multimedia display of, of sound and, and, and color with the flames and everything. On the day of Pentecost or the Jewish festival of Shavuot, Peter rose and preached the very first gospel sermon, forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And thousands responded and the church began with, with a mighty launch. And then we followed this story forward as we saw more and more different kinds of people, all sorts of people responding to the message of Jesus and this beautiful community that was, that was giving and, and loving and taking care of each other was formed. We saw the, the greatest opponent of the church, this fellow named Saul or Paul, uh, the leader of the opposition who was, who was conducting violent raids against sisters and brothers in Christ and hauling them off to prison and death, he was actually converted, right, on the road to Damascus. And there in Damascus, he put on Christ in baptism. So amazing things we're seeing as these witnesses, people just like us, began to share with their friends and neighbors the good news of Jesus Christ. And even persecution couldn't stop it. We've seen cultural, all sorts of barriers. You know, there are so many walls, and there always have been, that separate people, right? Walls of religion, walls of, of race, walls of, of politics, of, of nationality, things like that that divide people. We've seen the gospel overwhelming all of those walls and forming this diverse group of people into a family. Walls, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the African uh, uh, eunuch, uh, we saw his conversion. Uh, we've seen uh, in, in Acts already uh, Gentiles, Romans, uh, uh, Cornelius and his family put on Christ as, as well. So just amazing things are, are happening. And today we roll into Acts chapter 15. It's about unity. It's about community. Because what we know is that when things grow, it could be your business, it could be your family, you have a new child, um, it could be a church that's experiencing a season of growth. With growth, which is a good thing, comes challenges, comes problems, and certainly that presented itself uh, to the early church as well. They were not immune from the problems of growth. So, the question in Acts 15 is how can the leadership of the church cultivate this atmosphere where the gospel can remain pure, uncompromised, and yet all of these people from all of these diverse backgrounds and experiences where they can respond to the gospel and not be put off, where we're not building walls around the gospel. So it's a challenging thing, and we see the answer, I think, in Acts chapter 15, because you've got Jews, you've got Samaritans, you've got Greeks, you've got Romans coming into the church, you've got people who are raised learning about Yahweh, you've got people who are born and raised going to pagan shrines and temples worshiping pagan gods, and all of these people are coming together now, giving their allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's amazing, it's awesome, it's highly problematic as well, okay? Um, would the witness of the early church survive this? 
would it prevail or would it disintegrate into division and into disunity? And we're going to get there in just a few minutes in Acts chapter 15. Before we do, let me tell you about a trip I took a few weeks ago to Walgreens to purchase razors. It should have been, at least I was counting on it, being a very quick stop there in Walgreens. I needed some replacement blades for my Gillette. So I pop in there and I follow the signage and I get there to where the razors are. Some of you already know where I'm going. It is not so easy to buy razors these days. What I encountered was this vaulted area locked up where there, I can see them, right, behind the plastic, but I can't get to them. And I thought, you know, I could maybe get my hand under there. I tried, all right, I tried. I tried to get my hand under there and, and get a few out. I didn't really need that many or anything. But, I mean, it was like trying to steal the crown jewels or something. They were locked up. So I followed the instructions. Push the little red button and wait for assistance. And so I waited there, and a few minutes, the store wasn't very busy, but for some reason I had to wait a few minutes. And finally, you know, the person in the red shirt with the name tag shows up, and they say, how may I help you? And I said, I would like to buy some razors. And they said, oh boy, I don't have the key to the razors. Let me go get the manager. And I'm thinking, there's so much stuff in the Walgreens store, right? I mean, there's so many pharmaceuticals out there. There's like beer and wine over here. But the razors are the ones that are locked up. Okay. So anyway, I'm like, okay. Finally, the manager arrives, and she watches me like a hawk after she unlocks it as I take my razors out, and, and I go up to the front, I buy my razors, and I walk out of that store, and I'm like, yes, I mean, I feel like I've just, I've run a marathon, or I've just climbed Mount Everest or something. It is an achievement these days to be able to successfully purchase razor blades. It is almost like they don't want you to buy their razors. They don't want you to touch their razors. You, you see what I'm talking about? Have you guys had an experience like that? I mean, it explains, really. Like, I've heard there's, you can buy razors online. Some of you probably do. And this Dollar Shave Club or whatever that sends razors in the mail to your house, I, I read that they made over $60 million last year. So they certainly found a niche there in the marketplace with frustrated men like me. Um, but it is a weird experience. It really is when you think about how hard it is. And it got me to thinking about the church, the church in general. Um, I think it is easy for us in the church to hold on to what we have and treat it as being so precious so valuable that we can kind of forget about the outside world and kind of try to hold it up under lock and key and it becomes very hard to get at. And if we are not careful and humble and really thoughtful, we can all too easily set up roadblocks between people and the gospel. Make sense? We can lock it up so tightly that they're not exactly sure how to get at the message of Jesus. I mean, it sounds like good news, but it seems like they really don't want me to get, to get it, you know? Um, and don't get me wrong, our intentions, I think, are good in churches. Uh, we want to protect the church. We want to protect sound doctrine. We want to protect the gospel. We want to make sure that what's pure and holy stays pure and holy. But our passion can turn into poison when it makes it hard for unbelievers to experience Christ among us and to begin their own 
journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Author James Emery White puts it this way. Too many churches look at things from the inside. It's almost as if they don't want you to accept Christ. And I think he's right. Um, It would be easy to think, you know, Walgreens just doesn't want me to buy their razors. Um, And sometimes I think it would be easy to think for an unchurched person, you know, I guess they just don't want me to know Jesus. So as believers, I think Acts chapter 15 invites us to kind of hit the pause button and work on looking at things from the perspective of those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now, to our first century example of this and how the church leaders wisely and lovingly chose to protect the witness of the church. It's kind of a witness protection program here in Acts chapter 15. How they chose to protect the witness of the church in a lost and dying world. All right. The setting as as the scene opens in Acts chapter 15 is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. Um, The gospel is reaching people from non-Jewish backgrounds in that part of the world. It is having a big impact as they are accepting the gospel, being baptized into Jesus Christ, and beginning their lives in discipleship, following the way of the Master. Now, this caused... A bit, probably the first big, ugly, nasty conflict in church history. All right? Gentiles, people who didn't know anything about the Torah, anything about Jewish customs and rituals, they are coming to Christ and they are rejoicing that they are being welcomed into God's arms. Um, They are just as much a part of the people of God as that. Hebrew nation has been for so many centuries. Miracles are being performed among them in the name of Jesus. The lost were being saved. People's lives were being transformed. The Holy Spirit was being given to them just as it was being given in Acts chapter 2 to an entirely Jewish audience. It was being given to them as Gentiles just as it was given to the Jewish folks there in Acts chapter 2. So good times, right? Uh, Not so fast. (laughs) This group travels from Judea, the area around Jerusalem, up to Antioch, where all of this is going on. And this group kind of considers themselves to to be sort of a religious police force, if you will. They're going to take care of business up there. I have no doubt, so they are Jewish folks. I don't know really if they were believers or not, but they were certainly Jewish folks. They make this journey, and I have, have no doubt that their intentions were good. They wanted to protect the faith... They wanted to ensure whatever their position, they wanted to ensure doctrinal purity. So good intentions. But in the Acts chapter 15 conflict, they become the first of four different groups that sort of find themselves at odds. So on your outline this morning, you can follow on version or in the bulletin. Um, on the outline, this would be group one. Okay. I need you to pay attention this morning as we work through. It's not terribly complex, but you need to kind of see the lay of the land to understand where we're going this morning. So group one, they went up there and they taught these new Gentile converts, 
okay? They taught them that all believers were required to be circumcised in order to be saved. Obviously, we're talking about men here, that they were required to be circumcised, male converts, in order to be saved, okay? Essential to salvation. This, for them, was a non-negotiable, okay? So here we have in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men from Judea arrived here in Antioch and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you what? Cannot, you cannot be saved. All right. So they saw themselves as kind of, I think you could say, quote-unquote, conservatives in the true sense of the word. Conservatives want to conserve things, and they wanted to conserve what had been true and what had been acceptable practice for centuries. All men must be circumcised when they come into a relationship with God. This was, as we saw in the text for them, a clear black and white salvation issue. It wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a concept that they thought was important. It was a necessary step to being saved. Um, now, Paul and Barnabas were up there in Antioch. And they were themselves Jewish Christians. Okay, They were themselves Jewish Christians. Christians who were working in Antioch and were the evangelists who were actually reaching all of these Gentiles, non-Jewish folks, for Jesus. And well, I mean, you, they, were, they were opposed to this teaching that, um, of, the, of group one, of the circumcision party here. So verse 2 says that they stood up to these teachers and that they entered into a, what are the words here, a sharp dispute and debate. So there are arguments and then there are sharp disputes and debate. I think what, what Luke is telling us here as he records this is they were livid. Okay? Paul and Barnabas were passionately opposed to this idea that was being planted uh, there by these teachers that came up from Judea. They were passionately opposed to what group one was teaching. So a decision was made then to take this to Jerusalem, to take this discussion to Jerusalem and consult with elders, apostles, and other church leaders there in Jerusalem and let them in sort of a, a council or a meeting decide the question. Which brings us to the second group that we meet there in Jerusalem. Uh, group two is also a group of believers. They believed in Jesus. We have no reason to believe that they were not saved, that they were not, um, their sins had been forgiven, they were followers of Christ. So this is group two, but they were Pharisees. Okay, Paul had been a Pharisee as well. Um, they were Pharisees also who believed in Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is group two. They are even more, quote unquote, conservative than group one, okay? So here goes. Here's the second group, group two. All believers are required to be circumcised and 
so you might put a circle around that and this is the difference all believers required to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses so even more stuff to do here is what verse 5 says so we're down in Jerusalem now. The meeting is happening. People are sharing ideas. Some of the believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees, so they're believers, but they're also Pharisees, they stood up and insisted. I don't know if there's anything uglier than a religious argument. And that's what's about to unfold here. They insisted. The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So these guys um, that caused the ruckus in Antioch, group one, taught that Gentile converts had to be circumcised. Group two comes along and says, that's not taking it far enough. Gentile converts must be circumcised and they must follow the law of Moses as well. Okay, so group one, group two. Now, group three comes onto the scene. Here it is, group three. All believers are saved, group three, all believers are saved by grace. Now, everybody who is named in Acts chapter 15 has this position. Okay? All of the heavy hitters hold this position that we're going to see in Acts chapter 15 that believers are saved by grace through faith, okay? Peter, we're going to see that he holds this position. Paul and Barnabas hold this position. Um, uh, James, who was an elder and leader there in the church in Jerusalem, holds this position as well. Now, Peter is the first to stand up and articulate this in the assembly. Of course, he is the one who preached the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. Notably, he is also the one that baptized the very first Gentile converts, Cornelius and his family. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. They lived in the Roman city of Caesarea, and he went there and baptized Cornelius and his family. Um, but as he was, remember this, this is very important. As Peter was there in the home of this Gentile teaching the gospel with some witnesses that he brought, okay, some other Jewish Christians he brought to witness because he knew this is going to cause a little bit of a stir. I'm here sharing the gospel with Gentiles. As he was teaching the good news, remember what happened. The Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his family. Okay. They began to speak in, in tongues, in languages. It was just like what had happened on the day of Pentecost. So, so Peter sees this scene kind of repeat itself now to the Gentiles. And this is important. Okay, Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Here's what Peter concludes from this experience there in Cornelius' house. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, Gentiles, just as he did to us Jews. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Okay, not by rituals or anything like that, but he purified their hearts by faith. So Peter's argument, I think, is really strong. I mean, God accepted the Gentiles without requiring them to first become Jews, okay? 
Gentiles can become Christians without first becoming Jews. So, Peter says, why do you want to require something that God, clearly in the example of Cornelius, did not require? Okay? I think that's pretty strong. But also, this is, pretty, this is almost comical, I think, because Peter reminds everyone there, look, you want to require that the Gentiles follow the law of Moses. He says, look, brothers, we Jews haven't even been able to do that. And you want to make them try to do what we haven't even been able to do? All right. So this is group three. Salvation by grace. The gospel without additives. What Paul and Peter and James and Barnabas and the other church leaders there in Jerusalem understood is that when you add something to the gospel, anything, when you add to the gospel, you actually subtract from the gospel. This brings us to the forgotten group. Group number four. They are not even there at this conference in Jerusalem. They are, of course, the Gentile converts around whom all of this started up in Antioch. But we've got to think about them as well because certainly the apostles are going to think about them. And one word pretty much sums up their um, position, if you will. Group four, they're just confused. Okay? They're just confused. When it comes to their conversion to Christ, to receiving the gospel, they went very quickly from hooray to huh? Okay, this is group four. Um, they had been thrilled to hear the message of Jesus. Overjoyed, they gave their lives to Christ. Exuberant. Then these teachers show up and say, you guys need to be circumcised or you will not be saved. So this is group four. Confused because they're unsure about what is required for salvation. They're getting mixed messages about what is required to be saved. Um, and here's the verse. I think it pretty much sums it up. Verse 24 in this chapter says this. Some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. Troubled, upset. So kind of a be bewildered group, group four. So they're in Jerusalem. At this big meeting, at this big council, if you will, everybody has an opportunity to share their view, and they will be listened to, okay? They will also have the opportunity to exercise some humility and some love and respect and listen to the other views that are presented. Now, in the end, wisdom and grace prevail. The decision was made not to saddle the new Gentile converts with a bunch of requirements based on Jewish traditions and rituals. Um, the decision was made not to lock up the gospel, okay, and make it very difficult to get to. The idea was to not make it impossible or difficult for unbelievers, Gentiles, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the key idea, and I think we can learn from this, the key idea that ended up shaping the decision that this Jerusalem council 
made. Okay. So here is the key idea that they operate from, and they end up producing a letter to be shared with the Gentile churches based on this key idea. Here it is. The key idea is that it is that less is more. So write that down. The key idea is that less is more. Yes. Make the gospel accessible to outsiders by insisting on what? On a small core of essential beliefs. Okay? They very strategically and and conscientiously choose to make the core very small in terms of the... Not that these, these are the only beliefs that matter or the only things that are worthwhile. No. But when you talk about what's really, really, really important, these are the only three things that we're really going to kind of insist on. So we have this laid out, this key decision, is, is, or the key idea you see in two different verses there in Acts chapter 15. The first one would be verse 28. It is, to lay, to, to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Okay, To lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. Um, the second one, verse 19... We should not make it what? Difficult. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So that's the key idea. When it comes to your core doctrines that you really insist on, less is more. Okay? Less is more. And you see pretty much everyone in the room on this occasion is Jewish. They're Jewish Christians. Um, They probably all, let's be honest here, they probably all kept right on observing the Jewish feast days and the Jewish customs that they had always kept. They probably did. And we see evidence of this throughout the the New Testament. And they ended up being okay with the Gentile Christians coming into the church without doing all of that stuff. Okay, so that stuff is meaningful and important to them. I'm pretty sure they all had their sons circumcised and all of that, even though they were Christians, it meant something to them. It was part of their heritage. They saw Jesus not as a brand new religion, like, okay, this replaces Judaism. No, this is the fulfillment of Judaism. This is what the, the, the prophets and, and, and the law, everything has always been pointing to Jesus. So it was still very meaningful to them. They, they probably kept all of that, at least most of them did, or, or tried to observe that stuff, but they did not insist the Gentile converts do that, okay? Now, what happened in Jerusalem, then, is a kind of witness protection program. It really is. They protect the unity of the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church and what they share in Christ through the Spirit, and they made sure the gospel wasn't ever going to be put under lock and key um, because of the traditions and rituals of Judaism, but that it would be thrown open so that outsiders um, would find no barriers preventing them from accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So, at the end of the day, the Jerusalem Council does end up publishing this letter that will be distributed among these Gentile uh, converts. And here's what is clear from the council and the letter. Three things, okay? So this is, we talked about less is more. Well, here is the less that they identified. This is really, really important. We want to make sure we're all together on this. The first is this, that salvation is based on grace. Okay. 
not on a legal checklist, right? That, that salvation is based on what Jesus did on the cross. And your faith in that, not on some legal checklist. We don't earn our way into God's favor. We aren't saved by our personal merits. Um, what saves us and what saves anyone is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. It is through His death, through His burial, through His resurrection that we and anyone else finds hope in eternal life and salvation. Um, what's essential to salvation? What's essential to salvation? The salvation issue is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's the salvation issue. Now, the second thing. Now, we, get, we begin to get into some of the particular circumstances there in the last two. The second thing is this, and this is really an important distinction to make if you're kind of going, whoa, where's all this going? The second thing it helps us to kind of ground ourselves it is that the moral law is non-negotiable while the ritual law is. Okay? It is flexible. Um, moral law, non-negotiable. Ritualistic, religious kind of law is, is pretty flexible and pretty optional. Okay. Um, in Antioch and around the Roman world, these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ, they would have spent their lives as pagans. Um, they would have been accustomed to all sorts of immoral practices that, that went on at pagan shrines and temples, including things like temple prostitution. Um, that immorality, in this case, sexual immorality, simply had to be left behind. Coming to Jesus meant a commitment to begin living as his disciple. That means begin living as this new creature that you were created to be in Christ. One who has been set free from the old life of depravity and sin. Okay, moral law. The legal, or not, not the legal, the ritual law, that of Sabbath observance, legal restrictions, a lot of that stuff you read in the book of Leviticus, all those kinds of laws, stuff like that, it's flexible, okay? Um, you could observe it or not. Um, many Jews would have kept right on observing that stuff as being meaningful to them, not as a requirement of salvation, but it was part of their story and their heritage. Gentiles typically would not have observed all of those rituals. The moral law, all believers would need to follow that as part of their discipleship journey. Um, Makes sense? Ritual law, optional. Moral law, um, not something you can opt out of. Now, the third one, and this is one we've got to kind of think about. It makes a lot of sense if we'll just take a little time and think about what's going on here. The third piece of the core. Consider other believers before exercising your freedom in Christ. Think about others. And it's tricky for a couple of reasons. One is the contextual thing of what was happening there in Acts 15. The other is us. We're Americans, and we have fought bloody wars and made tremendous sacrifices for our rights and our freedoms, and we value all of that, and we have national holidays that honor all of that, and we will demand our rights, okay? That's who we are. We're Americans. Um, and sometimes... We can insist on our rights to the detriment of someone else around us. 
hey, I can do this. I know, I, can, I know God says I can do this, or I know this is a freedom in Christ, and you can actually hurt brothers and sisters around you by doing that. So the, the exercise of my freedom can actually create hardships for other sisters and brothers. Now, getting, now here's the contextual problem. What was happening there? Acts chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. This is in the letter that they're going to send up to the Gentile converts. Converts. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. We'll get to this, okay? Um, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. So there are synagogues all over the Roman world. Moses has been preached in these synagogues since the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Okay. Though the Jerusalem council asked the Gentile converts to refrain from eating meat of strangled animals and rare steaks, I don't think you can say, even though this is part of the core here, I don't think you can say this was a salvation issue Um, It is, well, what they're going to say at the end of the letter is, you will do well if you observe these things, okay? This this is a really good idea in your church if you observe these things. Abstain from eating these kinds of meats. You know, they've been uh, animals that have been strangled or a super rare steak. Just abstain from that. Um, Why? Verse 21, he told us. Because where you are, there are synagogues. And for centuries, the law of Moses has been taught in those synagogues. So you are bound to be, at some point, sitting at a table or near someone who will be deeply offended and troubled and hurt if you're sitting there with a bloody rare steak, okay? Or if you're just completely ignoring all that they hold sacred and dear. Um, So Jewish believers, as a matter of conscience, simply would have great difficulty sitting down at a table with Gentile believers and fellowshipping with them if they were insensitive to the offense that consuming these foods would cause. Okay? Make sense? And the truth is, there are going to be Jewish and Gentile believers in virtually every city because there are synagogues in virtually every city, and people, Jews and Gentiles, are all coming to Christ at this point. So let's not get lost in the odd details of Acts chapter 15. I mean, meat sacrificed to idols? Um, what's that all about? Bloody meat, huh? Um, the specifics are not so important here because they really aren't relevant to North Dallas in 2015. Um, you're unlikely, I think although you might run into a vegan or somebody, but you're probably unlikely to sit down for a meal with someone who's going to see you order a raw ribeye and be offended by that, okay? Or, or a rare, not raw, okay? Raw might be kind of gross, but, but you're probably unlikely to sit with someone who's going to see you order a raw steak and think, that's terrible, how can you do that? Uh, maybe, maybe. But back in the first century, there was a high probability that that, that, that could happen and would cause some upset if, if it did happen. Um, So setting the details aside, the point is very important. We have 
something important as brothers and sisters. What we have together in the family of God is something sweet and valuable and should be protected. Our community, our fellowship, it's more important to me than the exercise of my individual freedom and then protecting my individual rights because you matter, okay? That's the idea here. You matter. The other believer matters. What we have together in our Christian family, this spirit-hewn community matters. Um, So, motivated by respect and concern for one another, we use discernment and we use restraints for the benefit of each other. Now, we have people here at Preston Crest, just this one congregation from all sorts of different walks of life. We're a pretty diverse um, body of believers here. And we want to help everybody grow and continue on their journey of faith with the Lord Jesus. Um, We want to reach an unchurched community around us. Um, We want to reach neighborhoods around us without locking up the gospel, without putting a bunch of roadblocks that make it virtually impossible that anyone would actually come to Christ here. Um, So we don't want to lock up the gospel. We want to unleash the gospel in our mission field of Dallas, Texas. That's what we want to do. Maybe this morning, as we close out, you just need prayers. Um, there is a situation that, that's difficult and, and troubling in your life or with someone that you care about, and you just need prayers. And we're going to invite you just to get together with, with somebody around you or your spouse, your family, your small group, or your connection, and pray over that or come down and pray with me or one of the shepherds and take that before the throne of God this morning. Maybe for you it is... Um, the case that you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have never received the grace that comes through what he did for you on Calvary. This morning, you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, being baptized just like so many in the book of Acts did to put him on as your Lord this morning. However you need to respond, do that as we stand together, as we worship together.